For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. We might not be back, I might be in jail, I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you remember I said, with the last words on my lips, I am a revolutionary. Revolution comes with a price tag You were slave to a flag in a country That clearly doesn't love you when they probably never Have told you turn the other cheek And they made it with a bat, fucking protesting them sit-ins Told you go fight in the war Vietnam, you died, good riddance The man of the house rule took you from your siblings Turned around a pump crack right up in your city And they just turned all your leaders to martyrs You was off in the war, now who was guarding Your daughters? It was riots in the streets Killed Malcolm and Martin, called the national guard up Because we ride with our guard up and that was Burning your guard, it's like in the mimic on the plot to you, everything that they taught you was a lie to you. See, they get in your skin and they die in the shoot. Take the American dream and then you die to the suit. One day it'll all make sense. If it ain't about power, then it don't make sense. But none of that money matters when you live in madness. The one that you figure out that all you got is this. Peace, love, and the middle finger. Peace, love, and the middle finger. Peace, love, and the middle finger. Good afternoon. You are tuned in to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm in on this broadcast from behind the enemy lines known as USA Inc. Today's date is September the 7th, 2015. September the 7th, 2015. It's a Monday afternoon. I hope that my words find you safe and sound behind these enemy lines. I know it can be a challenge. It can be a challenge, especially uh, depending upon the color of your skin. Uh, today, we do have a guest scheduled for you. Um, our guests, we're going to keep it in-house. We are going to have one of our broadcasters, one of the co-producers and hosts of New Abolitionist Radio, which airs every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time right here on Black Talk Radio Network, your station for new black media for the new millennium. Well, Max, of course, is a abolitionist. A lot of people don't know that there is a modern abolitionist movement. Of course, there's a modern abolitionist movement because slavery was never abolished. And we are a small movement. I'm included in that movement. I do consider myself to be a New abolitionists following in the footsteps of the great ancestors who fought against slavery um, ever since the beginning of slavery on this continent. And even before uh, they came here, they were fighting against slavery on the continent of Africa. So Max had an opportunity over the weekend to share the abolitionist message with 
Black Lives Matter activists in South Carolina, along with, I think he said either Cop Watch or Cop Block. Uh, they're pretty much the same group, if I'm not mistaken, just have uh, different names, but they pretty much share the same uh, information, and that is keeping a watch on the neo-slave catchers. You know, they're known as police, known as law enforcement officers, known as cops, but as abolitionists, we view them in the context of their original mission when the first police departments were created in the 1600s coming out of the slave patrol still with the same mission all right so he had opportunity to uh speak with these activists at in this uh charleston um yeah where uh dylan roof the terrorist committed his heinous act of terrorism at mother emmanuel church in charleston but they had a meeting called the charleston days of grace and so max will be joining us here in just about five minutes and he is going to talk to us about what he heard what the dialogue was about um and how receptive those were those in attendance were to the message that slavery was never abolished in the United States of America because, see, we are calling it things like mass incarceration. We are saying this is police brutality, uh, police murders, things of that nature. But we are missing the big picture. We're missing the historical picture that this isn't anything new. That hasn't happened before. And I think most people out there in the streets know that. But many of the people out there in the streets who are fighting against the system under a number of banners, they still have not made the connection to slavery. Slavery is one of the main pillars of the U.S. economy. And once we talk to Max, that will become clear to you. But also, I have some news stories for you to highlight um, some of this, what I'm talking about, putting it in the proper context of slavery. Once we get through with our interview with Max, we'll try to get to the three news stories that I posted for you in the program description for today. Uh, the first story is President Obama used the full power of his office, the executive branch of the U.S. government, on Labor Day to order the federal government contractors to offer workers seven days of paid sick leave a year. Now, contrast this with his non-binding policy recommendations in addressing police terrorism in the USA, and you will see that he is not going all out he is not doing all that is in his power to address the issue of policing in america and last week we talked about uh some of the recommendations of that task force that he put together i think that was put together ra rather hastily i'm not sure if it was after ferguson or if it was after the baltimore rebellion but like we talked about last week, it's non-binding his recommendations in addressing police terrorism. So contrast that with his binding executive order that he issued today. Speaking of Labor Day, because today is Labor Day, as many celebrate how labor unions have made work life better, work conditions, workplace environment better for employees, they are ignoring the clear and current threat 
of organ unorganized prison slave labor to their jobs. Let's look at today nine industries getting rich off of modern slavery because none of these people seem to be aware that there is a growing, growing labor force in these prisons, which we call modern day plantations. And in my opinion, labor unions should be at the forefront of fighting against slavery prison slavery they should be part of the new abolitionist movement so i'll try to um intimate that when i read those uh stories about the nine industries getting rich off of modern slavery and of course those industries uh sometimes use union labor unions are involved in those industries but again they are either not aware not paying attention or don't seem to care that their very livelihoods are being threatened by modern slavery. Now, the last story that I want to share with you, a police officer filed a complaint of racism against the Klaskany, I think that's how you pronounce it, the Klaskany police chief in Oregon, the state of Oregon. And this police chief has now resigned after coming under fire for calling black people and a black woman specifically an animal. And like a juvenile school child started making uh, monkey sounds and scratching under his arms like he, you know, was an ape or something. And um, so this police officer filed a complaint and this police chief has now been forced to resign. And now the police officer and his family are being harassed by the former police chief's racist supporters for not tolerating a racist workplace environment. So those are the stories uh, that we have on tap for you today. Uh, again, we'll talk about those stories after we get through speaking with our brother Max Parthas. Uh, also, let me give out the phone numbers for anyone who has any kind of questions, uh, who has some commentary to add. If, if you see, make an observation that perhaps, you know, we have not picked up on, please, by all means, share it. All right. Because we're supposed to be teaching each other. Iron sharpens iron. And so we are not always able to see everything. Well, never. You can never see everything. And, you know, somebody else with another pair of eyes might have a different perspective that uh, will bring further clarity to the issues that we discuss. So the telephone number, if you would like to participate in today's broadcast, is 641-715-3660. The area code is 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. Again, the participant code, once you dial the seven-digit number, Put in the six-digit participant code. That's 549032-POUND. Of course, people use that uh, line just to listen, but you can also comment through that line. Uh, just hit star six and one anytime you would like to uh, come on air. We will certainly welcome your calls. Um, you don't have to be in agreement with anything that's said on this program, but what you have to be is respectful. We always want to be respectful of each other. Of course, um, if you're outside of the United States or um, you don't have a telephone, you can use the web-based flash phone, but it does require 
that you have a pair of headsets, a pair of headsets to uh, participate in the program. Um, I should have heard from Max by now. Uh, let me just check my messages, make sure everything's all good with Max. Sometimes technology doesn't work like it's supposed to. Calls to come in and you will miss them. All right, Max is expecting me to call him. So let's go ahead and uh, call Max and get Max on the line. And uh, he can talk to us about what went down at this um, town hall meeting that he participated in. So it's calling him now. Hit him up through Skype. Again, the name of this uh, platform was the Charleston Days of Grace. I think we got Max on the line. Max, you there? Yes, sir. Peace, peace brother Scotty. How you doing? I'm not going to complain too much, brother. Not going to complain too much because, as you know, I don't have to tell you, there are people in a lot worse situation than we think we may be in because at least we have our limited freedom of not being on a prison plantation until they come snatches up. I say I'm doing better than those brothers and sisters. Amen. That's great perspective to have for sure. I, I definitely ran across a lot of people this weekend who had an opposite perspective, who considered themselves slaves while they were standing out in the sun clapping to uh, speakers talk. And they were talking about how they're <clears throat> economically enslaved and mentally enslaved, but nobody mentioned the physical enslavement of the millions of people who are behind bars right now and in cages unjustly in this system of slavery. Most certainly. Well, let's get right to it, uh, Max. Uh, I will I have devoted this entire first hour uh, to you and the conversation that you had. But again, let me I know I've expressed it to you before, but let me just express it again on air that I am very much appreciative of you and the work that you do. And I think that you are an invaluable asset to the new abolitionist movement. Thank you, brother. Uh, I appreciate that. Although when I look at myself and I compare myself to the people who came before me that we speak about every week, the abolitionists, uh, I don't compare. But I'm here and I'm doing what I can. I think that's all that matters. If you're here and you know and you're responsible, do what you can. Do what you and can. That's mm -hmm. what I'm doing. Right. Do what you can. Do what you can. And and we, I think, though, that you do a lot considering the lack of resources that we have as a movement. <laughs> So, you know, we're not getting any million dollar grants or not even a couple of thousand dollar grants from and we're not applying for them because we don't want anybody to think that they can control us through purse strings. Yeah, sometimes, well, actually, most times, all you need is your voice. Uh, we hustle up gas money to get places, you know what I mean? Sell a few T-shirts, and that'll get us to where we need to go so we can talk to the people and, and do what we have to do to change minds. Because I firmly believe changing minds is the key element uh, to get them to get away from these beliefs of slavery ending at any point. I was invited uh, two months ago to be one of the primary speakers at the Charleston Day of Grace Mass March and Strategy Conference uh, held in Charleston, South Carolina over this past weekend. And uh, we came through. Uh, I was uh, invited by Brother Muhaddin the uh, Haba Dibaya, I believe his last name is. And uh, he's been working with the abolitionist movement now for, I guess, since around July or June when I met him uh, at the columbia town hall meeting and we discussed it then and and it just hit his heart so much that he knew he 
had to get involved. And because he's one of the leaders uh, of and the leader of the Charleston chapter, but one of the main leaders of the Southern chapters, uh, he felt that he could bring this message of abolition into the Black Lives Matter movement. So I've been working with him. He's also been the brother that was feeding information through us, from us rather, to the Bernie Sanders camp, which is one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why Bernie Sanders has put this uh, legislation forth that's supposed to be coming out about abolishing private prisons for profit mm-hmm. from the United States of America. So we came out on Saturday morning, uh, early Saturday morning. We left out six. I had stayed up all night long, brother. I was so tired. You know, I don't do nothing at six o'clock in the morning. But, you know, we came through and we got there at 9 a.m. And the events were a march at 9 a.m. and then a rally. And then after the rally, a gathering at the uh, Longshoremen's Union Hall. So the union was directly involved with this, uh, particularly as good, particularly because it's Labor Day and because, as you said earlier, the union should be at the forefront of this. So uh, I was very happy with all of that. I wasn't particularly happy with the way things turned out for us in particular on Saturday, but I know God has his hands on things, and if he doesn't want you to do something at a particular time you thought you were supposed to do it, it's okay. He'll work it out for you. And that's what happened. So on Saturday, they had three hours of uh, discussions. The first two hours were dedicated to two keynote speakers. And uh, the remaining was people in the audience talking. But I'm going too far forward. Let me start from the beginning. When we arrived, we arrived as the march was coming up the road. So we joined the march there. And it was pretty uh, awesome to see. And they started singing. Ain't nothing going to turn me around, you know, and I felt right at home with that because that was our original theme song for New Abolitionist Radio, you know, nothing mm-hmm. going to turn me around. So I'm like, oh, yeah, these people are with us on this. And then they got to the rally area and uh, we marched with them. And when they got to the rally area where the stage and all of that was set up, they had uh, We Are the World playing, which kind of blew my mind. <laughs> uh, I just felt like that was a little bit too much, we are the world. But it also set the stage, in my mind, for what really was going on there. I didn't think anybody was going to be talking about uh, about private prisons for profit. I didn't think anybody was going to be talking about abolition. And actually, I was proven right, because that's just what occurred. You had at least half a dozen or more primary speakers who came up, and none of them mentioned any of these things, as if they didn't exist in their minds. At one point, an elder uh, statesman, I believe he was a member of the church, if not one of the pastors, came up and stated in no uncertain terms that, and I'll quote him, slavery ended because of fusion politics. And he was referring to blacks and whites working together during the abolitionist period of the 1800s to end slavery. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get involved with uh, disruptive politics right there and then. I mean, the Black Lives (laughs) Matter movement has master disruptive politics. I was like, you know, this is time for me to do snatch exactly the mic, huh? To snatch the mic. But, you know, I reserved myself and I held it back. First of all, it's an, it's an elder statesman speaking. I don't want to get up there and try to embarrass him in front of his crowd. This is not my purpose. My purpose there is to correct this uh, wrong that he's stating. So I waited patiently until he got off the stage, and then I went and spoke to this uh, brother. He must have been about 20 years older than me, and I'm 51 now. So so he's probably in his his 70s or late 60s. And uh, I told him that 
what he said was detrimental to what we're trying to achieve here because slavery never ended at any point in history and for you to state it so clearly and concisely as a statement of fact in front of all these people men women and children is harmful and you know the brother agreed with me right there and then he says you know you, you you're right i'm sorry uh, i didn't think about it when i said it but the next time i'll think about it and that was did, did, let me ask you this though but did he identify why slavery hasn't ended or did you have to explain it well i started explaining it and before i was done he was telling me yes i'm aware of all of that so he was aware of all of that when he said it wow <laughs> right exactly which kind of is it's kind of mind-blowing but nonetheless I, I talked to him about it. He agreed with me. He apologized and said he think he he would uh, change his rhetoric later in any other discussions that he has. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's true or false, but that was the commitment that he made. And I know that I went directly to the source and corrected the source right there and then. So the rest of the rally went on. It was very positive, and we had uh, the Black Ranger Corps Corps was there. Uh, the Nation of Islam was there. The uh, Leaders of the churches in Charleston were there. People had come literally from all over the world. You had people from Europe there, uh, Boston, New York, California. And uh, it, was, it was quite a gathering of people who consider themselves leaders in their various movements. So that went on until uh, 3 o'clock, I guess it was, or whatever it may be. And then we went over to the labor union to the Longshoremen's Union. They had put together so we could have four or five different simultaneous conferences on various aspects of what the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to achieve. And the part that they put me in was ending discriminatory policing. So I was supposed to incorporate abolition into ending discriminatory policing. Now, if you know me, you could tell me what I'm supposed to do and what mm -hmm. I do may be two different things. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go in there on my own agenda and I'll agree with you until we get to the point where I get the mic in my hand. So I thought I would be speaking that night. Uh, they had two keynote speakers, as I mentioned earlier, who came on for the first uh, almost two hours. And one of the elder statesmen that came in, representative of the church, I believe he's a bishop there, and uh, he spoke for like 45 minutes or so. And uh, he talked about all of the different issues that Charleston faces and how we need to come together across racial boundaries. And uh, he talked about economic issues and discriminatory policing and all the subjects that were on our list of conferences that we would be having that day. The one thing he did not mention was prison for profit. Not at all. Not a word of it. Never mentioned the 13th Amendment exception clause. He never did say slavery ended like the other brother, but he never mentioned anything about slavery other than in a past tense rhetoric, as you mentioned earlier, which is what most people do. And then when he was all said and done and he had you know, given his entire speech, the brother who has organized this for the Black Lives Matter movement came immediately up after him and started talking about the 13th Amendment. And he talked about uh, in maybe just in about two minutes worth of time, how the 13th Amendment uh, allows these prisons to continue to use slavery as a system in the United States of America through that exception clause. Let me and, let me interject, if I may, uh, Max, um, yeah. because if I don't, I'll forget 
And, yes. and but I think it is important to point out that when you mentioned earlier, they were saying we need these fusion politics and how whites and blacks and and work together in the 1800s to address slavery during their time period. Uh, the new abolitionist movement that that um, we have been a part of for the past four or five years. And, you know, as a group, I understand you've been a lifelong abolitionist, you know, but in terms of when we started working together and organizing and, and, you know, doing a whole lot of online uh, activities, creating a group move to abolish 21st century slavery to connect with other abolitionists all across the nation that our movement has always been about fusion. It, it, it has always been color blind so to speak and while we do recognize the fact that blacks are targeted more than anyone for modern day slavery um, have always been so uh, beginning with the convict leasing program that sprang up immediately after the civil war we do not use racialized language because we want to impress upon everyone that slavery impacts us all. If you're not behind them bars, you're certainly paying for somebody to be behind them bars. So, it, I mean, it, it touches everyone. Um, the other point. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement. I know there is one that is a, um, a 501c3. I know that there was a split among the original um, uh, activists who who went under that hashtag and they then created We the Protesters and created the website JoinCampaignZero.org, I believe it is, JoinCampaignZero.org, and they were asking for policy proposals they were asking for help they were saying you know what should we be focused on do you have any recommendations we are asking for help from the public and that is the one and only proposal that i sent to them was to get them to recognize that the 13th amendment did not abolish slavery all of this police violence and, and terrorism and and all of this stuff is connected and we can link it it, it is sanctioned under the 13th amendment so I don't know if, if that's where they got the information from or if he came up upon it independently, but it's good to have it mentioned. But you felt like, you know, he still was lacking in his understanding. So please continue. Well, it was the, the uh, elder statesman from Charleston, South Carolina's churches who I felt was lacking in what he was talking about. He, okay. he just did not mention these prison for profits. Brother DeRay uh, Mackison from the, uh, I, I guess it's the We the Protesters group and the other one that you just mentioned, he was actually there as one of the scheduled speakers or panelists. He never really did get to speak much. He talked for about a, a two minutes. And that was mainly because the keynote speakers took up all the time that was allotted for everyone else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they just rambled on and on and on and they never mentioned these uh, issues at all, as I said. And then when, when the young brother Muhaddin came up and he spoke about the 13th Amendment, the keynote speaker, the elder statesman who was there and had been speaking on history as if, you know, he had so many degrees, like he knew everything that was going on per date and he was quoting history like he could quote scripture, had never mentioned these things. And when that brother did, he nodded his head in agreement like, yes, yes, you're right, brother, you're right. He just nodding away to it. And for me, that just felt like the word that I, the feeling that I felt was shameful. That's what I felt. 
because you're nodding to this young brother saying and putting this up as a priority when you were just up there for almost an hour and you never said a word about it. So it never even registered on your radar of importance until someone else said it. And then you're nodding in agreement with it, saying, you know, I know this. This is Yeah, you're right, brother. I knew it. You're right. But you didn't mention it. And that, for me, was a problem. So by the time the keynote speakers had been finished, there was no time left for the other speakers like myself who were scheduled to talk on that occasion. Uh, what they did was they allowed everybody in the audience to become a part of it by uh, giving them 30 seconds to let their thoughts be known. And uh, at that time, I said, well, I was kind of bothered because I, I had been scheduled two months in advance to speak at this event. And because these speakers decided to talk about all these other things about, you know, they had nothing to do with ending slavery, it kind of cost us our time. So in my 30 seconds, I simply asked a couple questions on that particular date. And the questions that I asked was, uh, I said, you keep calling this a system and saying we need to end this system. What's the name of the system? It's a simple question, right? What right. is the system called? What is the name of this system? And then I asked also about racism. I said, you know, we fully understand that racism is an illusion. It's a narrative that was crafted in order to justify enslaving Africans and genocide against Native Americans here in the United States. So what role does racism play today if not to continue that narrative and allow the same things to occur? And uh, nobody really gave a clear answer, so I answered it myself, and I said, the system is called slavery. That's what it's called. It's a system of slavery. And the narrative still plays the same role that it played historically. It dehumanizes a uh, population of people, which allows even the poor white to vote against their own interests in order to keep this system going of slavery, thinking somehow it benefits them. My purpose at that in that little short period of time was to get those thoughts into their mind. And uh, then everybody else finished their statements. A lot of people were in agreement with the things I was saying. I spent most of my time while I was there speaking to the Longshoremen Union members, one-on-one, -on -one, four at a time, three at a time, and explaining to them, as you mentioned earlier, that this fight right here, they should be at the forefront of because of the labor practices going on in these prisons. And they didn't know about the 37 states in 2013 that passed legislation allowing their prisons to use their uh, prisoners as a labor force for private companies. They had no idea about that. It was new to them. And uh, apparently I was the first one to bring that information to them. And it spread like wildfire. That information went from person to person to person. And the next day I heard a lot more about it. Where it came right back to me hey so on I'm, the other let, let's go ahead and um take our scheduled break and on the other side please tell tell us how this resonated among labor unions because again today is labor day uh president obama took forceful action in issuing an executive order to make sure federal contractors give their workers um uh, how, uh, what is it? Sick leave, at least six uh, days of sick leave. But I have yet to see any executive orders that are going to dismantle the system of slavery. And and I just again, like I stated at the beginning of the program, the labor unions are either ignorant, unaware, or their leadership 
is somehow just able to ignore the fact that their very livelihoods are are threatened by the ever-growing expansion of slavery in this country, what people are calling incorrectly mass incarceration. So we're talking to Max Parthis today, New Abolitionist, the uh, co-host and co-producer of New Abolitionist Radio. If you have any questions, any commentary, uh, don't hesitate to give us a call, 641-715-3660. That's 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549032-POUND. Hit star 6 and 1 to comment on air. We will be right back on the other side. This is Ron Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. Uh, the, the power structure has successfully created uh, the image of the American Negro as someone with no confidence, no militancy. And uh, they had done this by giving him the images of heroes that weren't truly militant or confident. And now uh, here come Cassius, uh, the exact contrast of everything that uh, was representative of the Negro image. He said he was the greatest. Uh, all of the odds were against him. He upset the odds makers. He won. He became victorious. He became the champ. They knew that as soon as uh, if people began to identify with Cassius and the type of image he was creating, they were going to have trouble out of these Negroes because they'd have Negroes walking around the street saying, I'm the greatest, 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 greatest. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back. You're tuned in to Black Talk Radio News. I am your host, Scotty Reed, broadcasting from behind the enemy lines known as USA Inc. And our guest today is one of our own Black Talk Radio Network family members, Mr. Max Parkis, a new abolitionist in this new millennium. So just before the break, Max, you were talking about the um, labor unions and you had spoke to them. Uh, seems like at the end of that day and your message started resonating with them. So please continue. Yes, not only was it the longshoremen unions there, but all uh, uh, other representatives of labor unions and labor movements ha- were also in attendance who had come from across the country. And I was speaking with all of them individually. Whether I, you know, I, I hadn't had my opportunity on that day to speak to the crowd that was there, but I took it upon myself to go and speak to them in groups. And uh, they were all in, uh, uh, unaware of how bad the situation has gotten with labor being used in the prisons. As I mentioned, the 37 states that passed legislation in 2013, I pointed out how the uh, California prison prisoners, including the youth, are fighting fires at a dollar or two dollars a day out in California. And I pointed out how they're processing hamburgers in Alabama and, you know, 200 percent prison population there is uh, working on these things. I pointed out how Unicor is using um undocumented workers, over 5,000 undocumented workers who are also working labor jobs that are stealing jobs from the labor movement. 
So they were very upset about that after hearing it, and it started resonating. Like as I was walking around the crowd, I could hear people talking about it individually afterwards, and that uh, for me, I thought was somewhat of a victory because it started pushing that information out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the end of the day, after everything was said and done, I was pretty exhausted. I had said I hadn't slept the night before, and I'm dealing with health issues, so I, I couldn't go any further. We went back to my family's house and we stayed the night. I was scheduled to come in the next day to do the same thing again, but after the first day, I was unsure how things would turn out. So the next day we get up and we head out at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. It's supposed to be from 10 to 3, and I'm supposed to be giving a an hour and a half long discussion. And when we get there, they're telling me that the whole thing is over now. Like we got there at like, I don't know, it must have been about 11 o'clock. And they said that the whole thing was over. So the crowd is all still there and they just finishing up. So there was a miscommunication with the times and everything that was going on. And I, and I grabbed Brother Muadine. I was like, you know, I, I let him know how I felt about what was going on, first of all. And, you know, me being scheduled two months in advance and not being able to speak is kind of messed up. So this brother went and grabbed everybody before they left and said, we're going to have an abolitionist caucus right now with Max Parthas. So I ended up having the whole crowd come in to this abolitionist caucus that he put up, put together right there and then. So as I said, you know, God works in his own ways and he puts people in places where he wants them to be when he wants them to be there. And I was lucky uh, because at that point, these were the leaders of the community organizations across the country. Leaders of the labor movement, leaders of education, uh, leaders in uh, fighting mass incarceration, teachers union members, all of these people were there then. So they put together the conference and we all got together and I broke down to them what I break down every week on New Abolitionist Radio along with you and Johanna, how slavery never ended. Uh, I pointed out to them about the 13th Amendment and then I read several states' constitutions showing how if the 13th Amendment is not that important, then why do all of these states have it in their constitution as well? Some of them in various ways where they allow, like in Georgia, slavery to be enacted upon a person for contempt of court. Or in Vermont, where Bernie Sanders is at, why does it say that you can be a slave for debt? in Vermont, or something as simple as the like, which is a very vague term. And I read all four or five of those to them, and then I started pointing out uh, how this thing is profit-driven. Uh, I, I showed them some of the kings of slavery in this land regarding states like New York and California, and uh, as we talked about the other day in Wisconsin with Sheriff David A. Clark, I reminded them of what David Clark said, how we are, um, we need to be eradicated. We're, what did he say? We're he said that black lives matter. <laughs> so he, you know, instead of saying lives, he said L-I-E-S, lies, black lives matter. Right. And he said that they were black slime that needed to be eradicated. That Yes, I reminded them that this is being said publicly now by law officials. And then I pointed out why they're saying this, particularly with Wisconsin as an example, how one in two black men have done prison time in Milwaukee County, uh, in Milwaukee before they're 30 years old. One in two. And then I also started pointing out some of the things that we found out in our Ferguson is America series. Uh, I'll give in a couple of examples here, and I'll start right with the kings of it. Uh, 
we haven't gotten we haven't done this for California, so it was new information for everybody. It may be new information for you. California's annual budget for the Department of Correction is nine point three billion dollars, Scotty. Nine point three billion. I didn't know it was that much. Yeah, up to now we've been talking about states with a billion three or one point three billion and saying that's a lot compared to, you know, uh other states where it's only four hundred thousand or uh or four hundred million or five hundred million like in South Carolina. California is nine point three billion and they employ seventy thousand people directly by the Department of Corrections. The population in California is seventy three point five percent white and 6.5% black, but there are seven black people in prison for every one white person. And I started showing them these stacks because I didn't want to talk about what I felt or what I thought. I wanted to give them the proof, Mm -hmm. facts of what's going on. And they were just as, uh, they were blindsided by that. They had no idea. And I also showed them how this 13th Amendment and the private prisons have exploited this from the very beginning in 1866 right in South Carolina when they built the first federal prison right here and immediately moved into black codes and convict leasing uh, and again they had no clue about how these things had, had come about and after I was done with it uh, normally when I have an abolitionist conference I'll start off by saying how many abolitionists are here now how many slavery abolitionists just so I can know if we have any in the room Mm-hmm. And in this case, I hadn't done that. But when I finished the conversation, I asked what I usually conclude with is how many slavery abolitionists are in this room now? Every single hand went up. Every single one of them were slavery abolitionists that day. Because how, many people do you, how many people do you estimate were in attendance? Well, in attendance for the, the whole thing was, I'd say, about 300. Well, how many raised their hands and walked out of their new abolitionists? All of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the end of that meeting, all of them were new abolitionists. Even an elder brother who came in from the very beginning when we introduced ourselves, you know, people were introducing themselves and talking about what they know about modern day slavery. And this one brother was telling us how it's all economical. And then he got into how he contributes thousands of dollars in Sumter County, I believe he said, towards helping the community uh, with educational prospects. And he was very set in his ways and said as much that he knows what the problem is and he don't want to hear no more about it. That type of definity, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He was definitive about how he understood what the problem was and then he didn't want to discuss it anymore. He was only there because he just wanted to hear what this was going to be about. And this brother was one of the most uh, excited people at the end of that conference. Uh, he, he It clicked for him. Like, he was a hard nut and it clicked. And that is a, a beautiful thing to see, Scotty. And I know you've seen it before in people's eyes or hear it in their voice when something that they already knew. Because all, we all know what's going on. We just haven't put the pieces together. And I came in and I put those pieces together for and it clicked. And that day they all became new abolitionists. And they some of them made uh, personal commitments as representatives of their organizations to start using uh, the message of abolition in their organizations. One of those was a brother out of Boston. It was several people who came out of Boston from Copwatch. And he just contacted me a few minutes ago and said, hey, I haven't forgot. We're going to bring you out to Boston to the Copwatch organization to speak with us about this abolition thing so we can get a better grasp of it. And also from the teachers union, 
when I told them about the teachers union having a hundred million dollars invested in the construction of private prisons, they didn't know that as well. And they asked as, uh, to wanted to invite me out to their memberships to be able to speak to them as well. And I also spoke with Laureen Meyerson, who is a uh, representative for the Bernie Sanders um, campaign. Apparently, Laureen is the person who has been giving the information that comes from us uh, to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and she was just so happy to finally meet me. And she promises to call me today, as a matter how, of fact. How did, she, how did she connect with us in our message? Mujahideen, uh, Brother Mujahideen, has been giving her the information through us. Okay. Like, I've been sending it to him, okay. and he's sending it to her, and she's sending it to the Bernie Sanders group. So now it's straight to the source. So she's supposed to call me later today, and we're going to have a discussion more about this and how it, uh, Bernie can incorporate this message further into his campaign. Right. Now, we know this month Sanders is supposed to, who, by the way, has overtaken Hillary Clinton. But I think um, in speaking for myself, and I, I don't want to speak for you, Max, but I, I know that you don't believe, just as I don't believe, that we are going to obtain freedom through politics alone. It's going to take a death by a thousand paper cuts. So with that, with that said, we as an abolitionist movement, we do not endorse any political campaigns. We just put pressure on them to address the issues that are important to us, most importantly, ending slavery. It's that simple, end slavery. Okay. And, and so, but it is, it was a kind of, it was kind of, I don't want to say, uh, I, I want to use the proper language here. It was, it was good to see. I'll just say it was good to see that a candidate who at least has, is acknowledging that private prisons are wrong, even if he hasn't come to, you know, um, fully state debt. This is not mass incarceration. This is a continuation of slavery. But it was good to see him overtake Hillary Clinton, who we know has long standing ties uh, to the uh, modern day slavery, even has two uh, private prison lobbyists raising money for her campaign. So that was good to see that at least, um, you know, that um, he has overtaken uh, one of the primary, one of the primary uh, people responsible, more responsible than most for the policies that have resulted in increasing slavery in this country. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Historical, Scotty. And it's being downplayed. I don't understand why it's being downplayed, but he's the first presidential candidate to speak of abolition since Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And they're downplaying it as if it's some kind of subtopic and it really is of no importance but that should be his primary thing. And that's what I want to talk to Laureen later today, if possible, about. That should be what he's running on. He'll get elected on that. But if he keeps allowing them to push it into the back as if it doesn't matter, then he's just going to be another candidate. And uh, they're going to overtake him one way or another. But as an abolitionist, ending slavery, oh, my God, everybody will get behind him as far as I know. And those that don't get behind him will show themselves as what? people who support slavery right. so you'll have an either or situation so i'm hoping that 
this discussions I'm having with their camp and I have been having with their camp over these past couple of months will lead to that, to Bernie Sanders being the 21st century equivalent of Abraham Lincoln. And, and well, let's hope he's not because <laughs> well, we, we know the real Lincoln. You right. know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. You know, mm-hmm. the first presidential candidate to address the issue of slavery. But we know Lincoln never had any intent to uh, end slavery. He had to be forced into it. OK, and that's what we are about. We are about forcing, forcing the issue. Um, like we said, death by a thousand paper cuts. All right. We want to address the issue in every area of people activity that we can to focus on ending slavery. But um, now I would say this, that just him proposing, let's talk about that proposal, which is yet to come out. I haven't seen anything, not even a rough draft of it, but he's supposed to uh, put this proposal through the Senate, make this legislative proposal to the Senate this month. As soon as that's done, certainly we will inform our listeners. But there are a number of things that I want to say about that. Number one, every abolitionist should get behind this legislation. And even if you don't vote, okay, even if you don't vote, it that don't matter. You should still get on the phone to these these uh congressional representatives over your district and and pressure them to support this legislation pending review we haven't seen it yet okay so we can't grade it until we see it but let's just say that it actually just straight out calls for the abolishment of private prisons then we have to build the the political momentum to get that legislation passed is this legislation going to end slavery no it's not but it certainly would free a lot of slaves, if you if you get my meaning. It certainly would free a whole lot of people who are enslaved on the prison plantations of the GO Group, uh, CCA, MTC, and a whole host of others that you know are lesser known that you know we may not know their names right now because we listen to the GO Group calls and you have what you have people calling in from this investment group, that investment group, you know, calling in. To see how much money they made over the quarter on on 21st century slavery all right now the other thing it's going to do it is like you alluded to earlier it's going to put it's going to make people take a stand you're either for slavery or you are we'll just leave it in the context of what he's proposing you are either for private prisons or you are against private prisons so a group like the NAACP, Urban League, National Action Network. Now, we know that they get a lot of grant money from these corporations that also in, are invested in slavery. Wells Fargo, second largest investor in, in uh, the GEO group. All right. Bank of America, big time investor in Correction Corporation of America. Right. So if these groups are standing silently by as this legislation gets introduced and they are not issuing public statements and telling their membership base and anyone who they have influence with to support this legislation, then that lets you know where they really stand. All right. What are your thoughts on that, Max? Any of the things I brought up? I think that you're right on point. And I think that history may not repeat as, uh, the author said, but it certainly does rhyme. Uh, uh, that was uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy that wrote Tom Huck, Tom uh, Huck Finn. The guy that wrote Huck Finn. 
Mark Twain. Mark yeah, Twain. Mark history Twain. may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme. And what we're seeing right now is history repeating in that way. So uh, what we're watching with the Bernie Sanders uh, information, first of all, I want to see the legislation in its text before I can really get behind it. I want to see what it has to say because we're making some assumptions right now and we right. may be wrong. And hopefully Lorraine will give me a draft of it in advance so we can review it and they can have any corrections made that we might want to add beforehand if they allow that. But let's keep our fingers crossed. But I think you're certainly on point with that, Scotty. Uh, in the 1850s, the late 1850s, statistically speaking, only 5% of the American population were professed abolitionists. Only 5%. That's all it took to drive that narrative to end slavery. And 50% of the American population were anti-slavery. So by putting that politician at the time, Abraham Lincoln, into the uh, spotlight, it made people take a stand one way or another. You were either for slavery or against it. And here we're seeing this repeat again. You're either for privatized prisons for profit or you're against it. That's right. That's right. And there's no standing on the sidelines, being pat and not saying nothing. OK, if the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People really want to help uh, black people, colored people, whoever, non-white people, then they should be the first one to be endorsing this legislation. Again, pending review. But it uh, it should not be very complicated. It shouldn't take a bucket of words to abolish uh right legislation to abolish private prisons in this country. And one of the things that we might need to point out to uh the Sanders campaign is that, you know, the first thing the federal government needs to do is divest itself of Unicor. It's a brilliant idea. It should be one of the first things they do. And, you know, they were there as well. The Charleston NAACP president was there. I spoke with her. Uh, about abolition while I was there and the ACLU were there as one of the panelist members at the uh, conference. So <clears throat> got to speak with her as well. So all of these people who are in these positions representing these organizations heard this message and can, if they so choose, take it back to their organizations to use. But we know that isn't as easy as we'd like it to be because we have been in direct discussions right on our program with NAACP presidents who uh, have called themselves abolitions, abolitionists, but have yet to really come out with an abolitionist message. That, um, again, man. And, and then also I have noticed like a lot of NAACP chapter presidents, like at the county level and stuff, there are some good brothers and sisters that are out there doing work. But what, mm -hmm. when I talk about the NAACP, I'm talking about the national branch. You know, the national branch with, you know, while it's a separate separate organization is still part of the NAACP or under the umbrella. But the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, they should be filing RICO charges on these people. You know what I'm saying? Which we talk about that a lot, um, which is the ideal that came out of us reviewing, you know, uh, the uh, Department of Justice report on 
Ferguson, and mm-hmm. which led to, you know, Ferguson is America series. And we started talking about, all right, well, we know the problems. They are identifying all this stuff. Well, how do we stop it? Because the, the United States government isn't prosecuting not one of these people, even though they cited criminal violations. So what can we do as people outside of the government uh, to address these issues and RICO charges is one one area that we could go after them so you know the aclu bunch of lawyers naacp legal defense fund bunch of lawyers i heard people talking about benjamin crump is is black america's lawyer and what well benjamin crump get to filing some rico charges on these people you know what i'm saying i did bring that topic up and i explained to them how we could use rico charges just like you're doing right now to the group that was in attendance and they were very much uh, in agreement with us because this is something you can use RICO charges against. It is racketeering, organized racketeering. It is a system, uh, set up, a criminal system set up to enslave people for profit. So hopefully the messages that we brought across yesterday and the day before are going to ripple outwards and spread this abolitionist message so people understand that there is more than just the two choices being offered to you. And the two choices that are being offered to you are either reform or no reform. But there's a third option. And that third option is abolition, to abolish particular uh, issues and systems from our United States of America forever. First and foremost being the 13th Amendment exception clause. Then take out the slavery language from the state's constitutions, uh, abolish private prisons and prison for profit and all the uh, sub companies that surround it and survive on it because that's a half a trillion dollar a year industry right here in the United States. And then move towards freeing innocent people who we estimate is upwards of a million and a half people in these prisons who should not be there at all mm-hmm. to get them out. That should be a major priority. And then finally, to seek restitution and reparations directly by liquidating the assets of these prisons who have profited off our suffering for the last 45 years. See, that's so, something I've tried to uh, convey over the weekend to a reparations uh, group on Facebook is, you know, they tagged me in some stuff and was saying, you know, uh, take this poll, you know, how do you want reparations, $50,000? I forget the other options or whatever. And I was like, you know, first of all, I want to end slavery first. That should be first and foremost. You're Mm -hmm. talking about getting reparations for something that happened over a 100 years ago that ain't never ended. So let's end slavery, then talk about Let's do it all in order. Slavery, reparations, slavery, reparations, you know, because you you are talking about you are talking about getting money for something that your ancestors suffered and your family members are suffering from it now. So it it would be a bad move to get reparations before ending slavery, because then what you're going to get after that is a paid in full stamp on your forehead after that. They're going to be like, we could do everything we want now. We already paid for it. You never ended slavery. You should have ended slavery. We paid you for it. We gave you $50,000. And then the next week we made a loaf of bread worth $10,000. So that went really quickly. And now we're going to go back to enslaving you. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm not trying to link 
uh, reparations to our new abolitionist movement. That is something t entirely separate. And we are focused on ending slavery, all that other stuff. We can debate at a later time. But right now, the mission is to actually end slavery in this country. It, 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 without doing so is to put the horse, you know, put the cart before the ho horse, in my opinion, Max. Yes, yes, that's what it would be doing. I mean, you wouldn't ask someone who's molesting you habitually uh, to pay reparations without ever having them go to court and having to pay for the crimes of molesting you, because then they could just get away with it forever after that. So we need to end the crime first and then get our reparations. And that's what I was proposing to them. And I also added after that, once we get our uh, restitution and reparations, then we can look towards black autonomy by pooling the resources that we now have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, that, that was all received very well. Very well. Uh, well, that's you know, good to hear. That's good to hear. I mean, you really, um, anybody that I have talked to about the abolitionist movement, whether it was person to person or whether it was through social media, I have yet to come across a person that just outright just, you know what I'm saying, say, you know, that are opposed to the abolitionist message. Okay, they may not be that enthused about it or anything like that, but they can't argue with you. They can't argue with the fact when you point out the exception clause in the 13th Amendment, when you point out the convict leasing program, when you point out Richard Nixon's war on drugs, when you point out President Clinton's three strikes, when you point out any of these things, the evidence just is overwhelmingly pointing to one thing, and that is slavery. But I want to take a short station identification break, Max, and I got something because you mentioned something about reform versus you know abolition and i want to uh share a story with you that i shared last night on political prisoner radio but i want to share it again in case any of our listeners did not hear that broadcast last night uh but uh, again this is about people pushing a reform message in lieu of a abolitionist message and we shouldn't fall for it and unfortunately a lot of people are so we'll talk about that on the other side you are listening to black talk radio news this program broadcasts every monday tuesday thursday and friday at four o'clock p.m eastern time the telephone numbers if you would like to ask max a question ask me a question of share observation the telephone number is 641-715-3660 that is 641-715-3660 the participant code 549-032-POUND 549-032-POUND hit star 6 and 1 to signal me that you will you would like to uh, comment on air stay tuned we'll be right back with our new abolitionist brother Max Parthas this is Brother Elliot, first of time for an awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Desperation to someone who is not 
Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, Max Park. This is our new abolitionist guest of the day. Now, Max, I want to share this with you because it is very important that people understand the difference between reformism and abolitionism. All right, because we're hearing a whole lot of talk from people on high about we're going to reform this and we're going to reform that. And really, it is just sleight of hand that's going on. It's sleight of hand. It's a it's a magician's trick to get you focused on one thing while they doing something else behind their backs. All right. So anyway, Marilyn Mosby has become very popular in the black community, uh, particularly I'm talking about nationally, as uh, she is the pro- the Baltimore state attorney who is prosecuting the six pol- Baltimore police officers who were involved in the killing of Freddie Gray. All right. And so um, she announced a new program, which is called Aim to Be More, which plays off of Baltimore uh, Be More. Uh, aim to be more and the program gives people convicted of nonviolent crimes a second chance uh, the first class of aim to be more includes 30 nonviolent drug offenders the program requires participants to complete three years of probation community service a five-month internship and search for employment participants will have their records expunged after successful completion of the program um, I would prefer to utilize the in the uh, inundated courts for the worst of the worst and give our young people a second chance at redemption. People talk about Baltimore's crime problem, but what isn't talked about is the real issue at hand: systemic pro- pro- poverty. Mosby told the Baltimore Sun, "Look, poverty is an issue. It is kind of indirectly related to slavery." as it is poverty that forces people to do things that have been classified as crime, like, you know, selling weed or selling crack or, or things that they otherwise would not do if they could find a job, all right, if they weren't shut out of the job market. And number one, if there were actual jobs for them to actually have, okay? And, and so that's, that's while it's related, it's a separate issue, all right? Now, this is what I had to say to that in response, Brother Max. I said that that um, 
I said that first of all, what's crime? What is she calling nonviolent crime? So she hints that she's talking about drug crimes. Well, drug crimes are crimes that shouldn't even be crimes. This is what I classify as a crime. If I steal from you, if I kill you, murder you, beat you, if I bring harm to you in any kind of way, if I if I damage your property, if I steal your property, if I break into your house, if I rape you, if I abuse you, if I do anything against your person or your property, then I have created I have committed a crime. I have committed a transgression against another person's life, liberty, and property. But if I'm sitting in my own house and I'm smoking weed, who the hell have I harmed? Who have I harmed? So things that are classified as crimes are, in fact, not crimes. We only accept them as crimes because we are are being told that they are crimes by politicians who work for the system of slavery. And it's not often that I quote a conservative, and, and especially a conservative like Ann Rand. But she said something that makes uh, uh, absolute sense, and it is the absolute truth. She said, the only power any government has is the power to crack down on criminals. Well, when there aren't enough criminal criminals, one makes them. One declares so many things to be a crime that it becomes impossible for men to live without breaking laws. And Ren said that. Now, let me also ask you this. As Colorado, the state of Colorado, is debating right now uh, whether or not they're going to start giving refund checks to taxpayers, okay, because they're bringing in so much money from from selling cannabis, selling marijuana, or selling weed, they're making so much money that they have funded all their schools and they are got so much money that they're thinking about giving every citizen a piece of that pie, of that pie that they're making all this money off on this drug dealing. But in Maryland, in Maryland, all right, people are in prison for this. And Marilyn Mosby's talking about giving them a second chance. So what happens the third time they get they get caught? Is that going to be like that Bill Clinton legislation? Three strikes and you're in prison for life, enslaved for life. So again, this is the sleight of hand that the system is playing with people who, by showcasing people who look like us, who we think are empathetic to our problems and should be. And but they may not have a full understanding of the problem or they are not ready to put neo slave catchers and neo uh, prison plantation overseers out of jobs. Because if you ended slavery, there'll be a whole lot of people who will find themselves out of a job. And I think it's, again, about maintaining that pillar of the U.S. economy that is called slavery. Your thoughts, Max? Well, it sounds like she's missing the obvious information. She says uh, aim to be more, as if Baltimore were more somehow. But we've exposed both Maryland, the state, and Baltimore, the city, on New Abolitionist Radio. We know, and she's not going to mention this, that the Baltimore jail system is one of the oldest and largest pretrial facilities in the country, and every day they hold about 4,000 people on it, in, in that, that jail. 73,000 people go through that Baltimore jail every year. And here's the key number that you won't hear come out of their mouths. 91% of the people incarcerated for pretrial are black. 
nine out of ten people in the jail are African American in a state that has a 60% white population and a 30% black population. But nine out of ten are black in the jails. Now, why is that? And I'm willing to bet you that if the national statistics apply, that upwards of 80% of those people are in there for the very crimes that she talking about giving people a second chance on. Nonviolent, victimless crimes. Right, right. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're as you said, it's uh, a kind of a magician's trick, wordplay. You're paying attention to this, and it sounds so good that they're trying to make these small changes, but nobody's mentioning that nine out of ten people in those prisons and jails in Baltimore are black people. And why is that? Mm-hmm. Right. As I hear President Obama talk about, you know, we're going to reform the federal drug laws. Uh, we're not going to put you in prison for uh, one gram a crack for life we're just going to put you in there for five years well they should be put there period in my opinion it's not a matter of whether or not somebody should be smoking crack or not but it's a matter of where is the crack coming from i don't see any of those dea agents who work with the sinaloa cartel to allow them to smuggle uh drugs into the united states being put on trial I don't see the uh, DEA head, Michelle Lionheart, being put on trial for drug smuggling. I don't see any of the DEA agents who were in Colombia engaging in in, uh, sex with prostitutes in these parties that were paid for by drug cartels. I don't see none of that. I don't see, uh, I don't see, what is that guy's name? Of the representative whose family he married a Asian woman and her family's like this big shipping magnet and one of their ships uh, last year got busted loaded down with tons of cocaine off the coast of Colombia. I I, want to say Mitch McConnell. I think it's Mitch McConnell. So again, you know, if it, these people don't need to be in prison. Period. If you want to spend money on something, spend money on on educating people through public service announcements about drugs are bad you know the same thing we see with cigarettes you know we showing people that got you know uh 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 missing got holes in their neck from their tobacco use the government paying for that so if you don't want people using tobacco you can find a way to promote that right you're not making tobacco illegal so if you don't want people using crystal meth if you don't want them smoking weed even though weed is it it has medicinal values but if you don't want them to doing these things seems to me the money will be better spent on on prevention meth uh prevention programs and then aftercare programs so that once a person uh, comes to the realization that I'm destroying my life and my family by being hooked on these drugs, I want to get some help. That's where the money should be going. It shouldn't be going to California shouldn't be spending nine billion dollars to lock up uh, um, the majority of its population because of nonviolent drug crimes. So those are my thoughts is just, man, we falling for this reformism, man, and it's being lauded as the way to go, and the way to go is actually abolitionism. We don't need to reform the drug laws. We need to abolish them, repeal. That's what repeal means, to abolish. Just like they abolish the uh, constitutional amendment that outlaw alcohol. 
they abolished it. They repealed it. All right. We're asking for the same thing with the 13th Amendment, but uh, also with with the Nixon era drug laws. And, and you know, so cause anyway, that's my thoughts, Max. Right. I'm just I'm tired of hearing about reform. I want abolitionism. The to, whole reform or or no reform is a fallacy. It's an either or fallacy, a logical fallacy. It's a lie from the beginning. There are other options. And the whole narrative that they're crafting is that there aren't other options, that this is all you have available. And that is wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you, you want to get on to other stories, Scotty, yes. and yes. I'm just going to make a, a, a closing um note of something that I want people to consider. And I want to say thank you to uh, Mujahideen uh, Diaba for helping bring all this together. This brother is an abolitionist and he's one of the leaders of the Southern Black Lives Matter movement. And you can expect to hear a lot more coming from him. He's doing a PBS uh, special coming up and he's going to talk about abolition in that PBS special. So definitely a big shout out to my brother. That's great. Yeah, big shout out to you, brother. One of the things that I've noticed, Scotty, and this is the last thing I want to say, is uh, particularly with this gathering of people from all over the country and all over the world, is that we, African, the African-American community, the Native American community, we have a different set of priorities than those of Eurocentric uh, descent. We have a completely different set of priorities. And that really defines us. And I've noticed that when these white allies come in, they bring their priorities with them. And they try to put those priorities in place of the ones that we have. See, our priorities is our people being free. Our priorities is our people uh, no longer have to face the threat of death from simple things like a taillight or not putting on a turn signal. Our priorities are our children's safety and to keep them out of these cages. But their priorities are not those. See, they benefited from slavery. They never had anything that came upon them wrong or bad because of slavery. We did. And you didn't experience that. So you come into our movements with these priorities that have nothing to do with us. You're concerned with the Federal Reserve. You're concerned with uh, FEMA camps that are going to come and Pick up your people. You're confer- concerned with the Second Amendment. But nobody in that those groups are ever concerned with the prisoners, the people who are suffering the most, the people who live in poverty as they're being uh, accosted and their lives are being stolen by these police. When I spoke to this group and we, they talked about what they knew about modern day slavery early on in the discussion, none of them mentioned any of this. And we as children of the diasporas tend to adopt these Eurocentric priorities. You have to get your priorities in order. And for those that want to be white allies who want to help with this, you've got to change your priorities if you're going to be a part of what we're doing because we're concerned with life and liberty. And you guys are concerned with money often. So there's a big difference. We Mm -hmm. want immediate uh, safety and we want immediate relief from being killed, from being uh, incarcerated, from being abused and raped and molested. Those things are important to us, but you have other priorities. So if you're going to help us, 
change your priorities. Mm-hmm. It's really just that simple. And, and on that, I just want to say, because we do have a number of white people who are in our group. We got people of all ethnicities, religious backgrounds, political labels and whatnot um, in our group. And, and I will like to say to that group of 2,000 plus members that none of them have come into the group trying to push another agenda. Well, some of yeah. them have, and we just put them out. But for the <laughs> most part, you know, for, the most, for yes. the most part, people come in to learn in that group. And this one guy, uh, this one white guy, Jeremy Olmstead, man, uh, he's really been on it with those means to help educate people about. Yes, uh, out of Detroit. Yeah, out of Detroit. And he's really been on it. So um, we're not going to allow, you know, anybody in our movement to try to change the uh, movement. Uh, slavery, ending slavery should be at the top of everyone's list. I, I don't exactly. see how they can come second. I don't see how they can come third. It has to be your top priority. Or I have to say your priorities are not in order. Right. Like uh, a young European brother said to me at the meeting, he said, capitalism has to end. Uh, that's the system that we have to fight. And if we don't end capitalism, then we can't end any of this. And I disagree. Uh, I'm not out here to end capitalism. I'm out here to free my people. And if you're not trying to free these people who are enslaved and suffering right now, and you're chasing some other vision, then we're not on the same page. Right. And then is your goals achievable? We should always have a long term plan. You know what I'm saying? But right now we are on the cusp of doing some 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 monumental things like you point out. When was the last presidential candidate that addressed any element of slavery? Abraham Lincoln. That's it. You had to go back. Yeah. Hundreds of years. So (laughs) 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, Scotty, for allowing me to tell people what occurred this week. And I feel so hopeful now that the Black Lives Matter movement is fully behind us here in the South. And I think that we have great things ahead of us. This is an exciting time in history and you need to get involved now while it makes a difference. So thank you very much, Scotty. And uh, good luck with the rest of the show. I'll be sitting here listening to it. All right. Peace and blessings to you. Tell, tell your wife, Tribal Rain, I send my love. And y'all stay safe behind them enemy lines down there. Amen, brother. Peace. Peace. All right. We are going to take a uh, message music break. And then when I come back, I will jump on these news stories. I will check the phone lines uh, to see if anybody would like to share anything. Uh, If you have any questions, if you were confused about anything, if something's not clear, hopefully I can try to uh, bring clarity to whatever your question is. Uh, 641-715-3660. It's the phone number, 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549032-POUND. And again, hit star six and one to comment on air. We're going to hit up uh, some message music. We're going to listen to some words from H-Rap Brown talking about law and order. Uh, anytime we listen to these clips from the past, just try to put them in current context. So while he might t- be talking about Lyndon Johnson, just replace Lyndon Johnson's name with President Obama or or anyone, all right? Um, Then we will uh, listen to this track by the Black Sun called Tune In. And then when we come back, we will jump on this first story, which is about President Obama using the full power of the executive branch on this Labor Day to order federal government contractors 
contractors to offer workers seven days of paid sick leave a year. And then, of course, I want to contrast that with his non-binding policy recommendations in addressing police terrorism in the United States of America. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Lyndon Johnson, he can always raise an argument about law and order because he never talks about justice. But black people fall for that same argument and they go around talking about lawbreakers. We did not make the laws in this country. We are neither morally nor legally confined to those laws. Those laws that keep them up keep us down. You got to begin to understand that. For 400 years, she taught you white nationalism and you left it up. You taught it to your children. You had your children thinking that everything black was bad. Black cows don't give good milk. Black hens don't lay eggs. Black for funerals, white for weddings. That's white nationalism. Santa Claus. A white honky who slides down a black chimney and comes out white. We tend to equate progress with concessions. We can no longer make that mistake. You see, when they gave us that nigger astronaut, you say we were making progress, but I told you they were going to lose him in space. He didn't get that far. You put Adam Clayton Powell in office and you couldn't keep him. What do you think they're going to do with Thurgood Marshall when they get tired of him? They gave you Walter Washington of Washington, D.C., and you say we were making progress. That's not progress. See, it's no in-between. You're either free or you're a slave. There's no such thing as second-class citizenship. That's like telling me you can be a little bit pregnant. I was simple like a dick and get the vision that we missing from the positive outlook. I was taken by grief and this money grubbing hands introduced me to green. Nothing but a paperback and a misleading you. Let me to believe to do the things I do. Simply I would have to constantly be addicted to a smell, touch and feel. Now if that ain't real, it invaded my dreams, man. If that ain't real, wind your back and take again. Corruption always lives into the minds of many men. The high creativity and then it forces them into a corporate slavery to try to Find a balance, but it's like peasants trying to bring it to the king's palace and assume control. It's like the really gain power, you have to sell your soul. So I was left at the world without a place to go. Yo, keep pressing buttons, but you still out of tune. You keep moving down, but you still out of tune. You keep trying hard, but you still out of tune. It's pointless to tune in. You keep pressing buttons, but you still out of tune. You keep moving down, but you still out of tune. You keep trying hard, but you still out of tune. It's pointless. I've come a long way, no direction, just rejection, no protection, just raw action and thought. That's how I evolved on instinct, guide, think, and try off naturality. Never force mentality. In other words, you can't package or assemble my soul, my mind, my temple. I'm too complex, so I head cut and take L's with those in charge of what they say, clean cells, but I'm just being me. I'm in touch with reality. 
they in touch with a fallacy, which keeps them in debt. We gotta make a compromise. I don't mean to upset. We gotta find a way to drive and have our goals met. If we do work together, don't cop out that suspect. Catch up, no jet lag. You turned on. Let's get wet in the ocean of ideas that can make this thing grow. Out of tune, this goes to show. You keep pressing buttons, but you still out of tune. You keep in the doubt, but you still out of tune. You keep trying hard, but you still out of tune. It's pointless to tune in. You keep pressing buttons, but you still out of tune. You keep in the doubt, but you still out of tune. You keep trying hard, but you still out of tune. It's pointless to tune in. Peep game. See, I built with the owner. The foundation was weak, check with the ears of the listeners. See, they stay close to ground. Conflicted with the sound, whatever fed they can bounce. So I reason back. They can't throw up what they don't eat. Instead of these introduced, they can't accept it. No respect. It. So respect our struggle. Work to rebuild the game and show it love too. That's what he can't do. And yes, he admitted. I need profit to profit. Unbalanced logic, but we are symbiotic and we need mutual gain. And I had to sustain to understand this clarity. It's like mortgage. And we negotiate the terms, so I spoke delicate Because I really need to earn See, I yearn for us to meet at the crossroads But the house is still standing today so stop being cowards and let's have a revolution. But we don't want to do that. We just want to live a, a, um, a character. They want to be cartoons. But if they really wanted to do something, they would back up. All right, let's start our own country. Let's start a revolution. Let's get out of here. Let's do something. But they don't want to do that. They want to pimp our communities and, and portray this image that they know we all can't survive. When you start looking at it like that, you'll start seeing that it just don't weigh out to be in our favor. So we need to start figuring out another way. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back to Black Talk Radio News. Just to remind you, Tando Radio Show will be coming up at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Brother Dave uh, hosting from California. Brother Dave, um, I think he say Dave from L.A., uh, yeah, he will be talking about current events and prepare preparedness uh, because that is one of the primary reasons why we reached out to them to bring Tando Radio Show, to create Tando Radio Show on the Black Talk Radio Network is because <clears throat> a lot of us do not prepare for emergencies or prepare for natural disasters or prepare for man-made disasters. You know, and, and so that is a message that needs to be heard in our community so that we can, um, be better equipped to help ourselves instead of sitting around waiting on the Bush administration to come rescue people during Katrina. Uh, we will already have things in place to help ourselves. All right. So, uh, Tando radio show coming up at six o'clock PM, current events and prepping for the future. Hope that you will stay tuned and invite others to listen. All right. President Obama, again, used the full power of his office. He used the full power of his office um, to order 
or the federal contractors. Now, in case you don't know what that is, that doesn't mean that they work for the federal government. Well, they are contracted with the federal government. These are private companies who have landed government contracts. Uh, we can think of like, say, a construction company to do road work or something like that. All right. So they are under federal contracts and he has used his executive power by issuing a executive order telling them that not that they should off a worker seven days of paid sick leave a year. Not that they ought to pay, you know, provide paid sick leave for their workers. No, that they will or risk losing those government contracts. So this is coming to you from Reuters, Reuters.com, the news service. Um, always uh, careful to uh, always uh, have your... Uh, glasses on so that you can analyze these articles because oftentimes the corporate media will interject right uh right wing white supremacy into their articles or you know just white supremacy in general it ain't got to be right wing so anytime you read anything on um these news publications just always be prepared to be lied to and you have to pick it's not all the time but it happens often enough that you should be wary of these sources of information all right so they reported that obama signed an executive order on sick leave during a flight on air force one to boston where he spoke at a union event the White House said it would affect some 300,000 people. So starting in 2017, workers on government contracts will earn a minimum of one hour of paid sick leave for every 30 hours that they work. Contractors can offer more generous amounts at their discretion, but at a minimum, they have to give them one hour a paid sick leave for every 30 hours work beginning in 2017 by way of the Obama administration's executive order and executive orders do not end once the president leaves office they still remain in effect unless they are repealed now he uh, said uh, it goes on to say speaking to a friendly crowd with a tie Without a tie or jacket, Obama said such policies were beneficial to employers. It helps with recruitment and retention, he said. Unions and organized labor are a key constituent to the Democratic Party whose support will be critical in the 2016 presidential election. Well, I don't see how that's relevant because he's not running for president in uh, 2016. Obama who joked that he was glad not to be on the ballot next year, made thinly veiled references to Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie for anti-union remarks and policies, even though he did not name them by name. Well, it is important in pointing out those two, because those two, as um, we have reported on New Abolitionist Radio, and not just New Abolitionist Radio, but on this program as well. Governor Scott Walker and Chris Christie have long-standing ties to the private prison in industry in this country. Wisconsin, as Max told you, Max told you, leads the nation in incarcerating black people. 
leads the nation in incarcerating black people. And he started out as a state legislature introducing the legislation that would lead to mass enslavement in that state. All right. So the executive order follows a series of measures by the White House to expand access to paid leave. In January, Obama issued a presidential memorandum directing the government to advance up to six weeks of paid sick leave for birth or adoption of a child or for other sick leave eligible uses. Obama is also pressing Congress to pass legislation giving government employees six additional weeks of paid parental leave. Labor Secretary Thomas Perez said he could not say what the cost of implementing the seven-day paid leave rule would be to contractors. We believe the cost of implementing this rule is offset by the efficiencies that come with reduced attrition, increased loyalty, all of those things that have been documented in a number of studies of state laws that have been enacted, Perez told reporters on a conference call Sunday. Obama also used the trip to Boston to renew his call for Congress to pass the Healthy Families Act, which would require all businesses with 15 or more employees to offer up to seven paid sick days each year. According to the White House, an estimated 44 million private sector workers, about 40 percent of the total private sector workforce, do not have access to paid sick leave. You know who else has doesn't have access to paid sick leave? Those prisoners who are working for Unicor, which is a corporation that is owned and operated by the federal government. So if President Obama wanted to, as the sole executive officer of the executive branch, the CEO of America, he could issue a executive order shutting down Unicor. All right. Unicor. Look it up. U-N-I-C-O-R, Unicor, where they provide um, such services as call center work. Um, they make products. They uh, do a lot of work in sewing, you know, U.S. military uniforms and even making weapons for the United States military. All right. Things that they would probably be able to make a living wage at if they were not enslaved on this federal prison plantation. But oftentimes when they get out, the the vast majority of them can't find work. Alright? Because they are labeled as felons. Alright? And so, you know, I just wanted to bring this up because it just shows that he has power because often we hear the excuse used that he can't do everything by himself and Congress is blocking this and Congress is blocking that so we got to elect a bunch of Democrats so he can do something well it's too late for that now but when he had a majority uh, Democratic Congress you know first thing he got working on was the Affordable Care Act and got it passed and nothing else of any consequence since but he has issued executive orders as he just issued this executive order that is going to help up to 300,000 people all right in getting paid sick leave from private uh companies who have federal government contracts now last week I shared a little bit of the recommendations from his 21st century policing task force with you and all it was was a bunch of recommendations 
that police departments should do this and police departments ought to do that. But you can sit up there and say all day long that what a person should or should not do. You can say that all day long, but if you don't have any force behind that to force them to do what they should be doing, then you just flapping at the gums. You just running your mouth. Just like the bill that was passed in, I think it was 1994, I could be mistaken on the year, but the legislation that was passed and signed by President Clinton saying that that uh, police departments should or they're recommended to submit the number of people they kill to the Department of Justice so we can have an accurate count of battlefield casualties. Well, again, the language says they should. It doesn't say they have to. It doesn't say they shall or risk losing all of these government uh, subsidies that they get to buy military weaponry, to buy, you know, um, dash cams and any other weapons that they want to buy, any other equipment that they use to buy. Uh, yeah, they, no. I mean, the President Obama could right now, as the executive officer of America over the executive branch, controls the purse strings of the programs that are that are hosted by the executive branch. So if he wanted to, he could at any time rescind the funding that goes to police departments to make arrest of people on nonviolent drug crimes. He could say, look, we ain't paying no more for y'all to go out here and 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 arrest all these people for nonviolent drug crimes. What we will do is we'll give you money to solve all of these unsolved rape and murder cases. All right. You want to get that money here? Hire some more detectives, put some more people on investigating unsolved murders and rapes and things of that nature. Here's some money so that you can process all of those rape kits that you got sitting on a shelf somewhere that you ain't processed. Yeah, see, he, he could easily do that as the executive officer. All right? He can do that. But no, he's not doing that. This policing task force was nothing but a magician's trick again, sleight of hand, make it seem like that the Obama administration is addressing an issue that is important to so many people that they are shutting down infrastructure in this country, blocking streets and highways and things of that nature. All right. He could he could issue an executive order to force these police departments to, let's say, let's say, implement empathy test screening how about also racial bias screening what they call implicit bias yeah why not you know these these studies have shown that a lot of these people don't have empathy for other human beings and so therefore you know they may not be uh the best person to be doing that job or to be in this or that community because they don't got empathy for those people all right he could easily do that he could easily do that. He could easily issue a executive order tying it to the funding, the federal funding that police departments get and, and say, you will submit all the data related to the number of people that you kill. So, no, I know what the 1994 law said that you should do it, but I'm issuing an executive order tied to your federal dollars that says you will do it. You will submit all of that data or you will no longer get U.S. taxpayer dollars. 
That's what I'm talking about, people, this so-called reformism. We don't need reformism. We need abolitionism. Those, that's at least what I think needs to be done. And, you know, until somebody presents a logical argument that I'm um, wrong on this, then I'm going to uh, keep operating based on that logic. Now, speaking of Labor Day, speaking of Labor Day, good to hear that you had different labor unions who were in attendance um, at that event down there in Charleston, South Carolina, that Max had an opportunity to speak to them, the Charleston Days of Grace. Um, but again, we need to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing these unions to put their resources behind 21st century abolitionism because their workers, those union members, are certainly being affected not will be affected, are being affected by 21st century slavery and human trafficking. So I'm going to share an article back from February earlier this year that appeared on Salon.com, and it is titled, Nine Surprising Industries Getting Filthy Rich from Mass Incarceration. Again, I don't like using the word mass incarceration. I like calling it mass enslavement because that's really what it is. It's under the 13th Amendment, which says that we can put you into slavery or involuntary servitude if we convict you of a crime. doesn't matter that the crime shouldn't even be a crime, but hell, we got to keep slaves on this plantation. So uh, we're going to designate this people activity as crime and put you into slavery if we convict you on it. So this is the article that originally appeared on Alternate. It's no coincidence that the United States now imprisons more of its people than any other country in the world. Mass incarceration has become a giant industry in the U.S., resulting in huge profits not only for private prison companies, but also for everything from food companies and telecoms to all the businesses that are using prison labor to cut their manufacturing costs. The prison industrial complex even has its own lobbyists. According to a 2011 report from the Justice Policy Institute, the U.S largest private prison company, the Correction Corporation of America, and their competitor, the GEO Group, have both spent hundreds of thousands of dollars lobbying for longer prison sentences. And the American Bail Coalition has been lobbying for the bail bond industry for 23 years. One of the main reasons so many people are in prison in the U.S., which now has 25% of the world's prisoners, even though it comprises only 5% of the world's population, is the war on drugs, which has brought with it draconian sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. In, 2013, in a 2013 report on Americans serving life without parole for nonviolent offenses, the American Civil Liberties Unions found that 79% 79% were incarcerated for drug-related convictions. Three strikes laws, which mandate life without the possibility of parole after a third felony conviction, have also done a lot to expand the prison industrial complex. Reform is at odds with the agenda of many powerful industries. Well, again, I just talked to you about reform. And actually, some of these industries are getting behind the reform. All right? Because they would rather have slaves than not have slaves. So let's reform it. We won't be able to keep these slaves for 20, 30, or even life. 
we won't be able to have them. So let's get behind this legislation and try to minimize the damage. And we will support the reform legislation that instead would just put them in there from five to ten years. So at least we can make money off of them for five to ten years. Don't fall for the reformism, people. It's well known that private prison companies draw their profits from mass incarceration. Again, that's mass enslavement. But they're not the only ones. Here are nine industries that are profiting quite handsomely from the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration in the U.S. Food supply companies is number one. Supplying food for prisons can be extremely profitable, just as the Philadelphia-based Aramac Corporation, which brings in millions of dollars bringing food to around 600 prisons in North America. Aramac's profits continue to roll in even when the company does a terrible job. In 2014, Aramac received fines of 98000 and 200000 from the state of Michigan for a long list of infractions, including meal shortages, because, you know, slaves don't need that much food, unsanitary conditions, maggots found in the food. Hey, that's just protein. That's extra protein. And Aramac employees smuggling contraband in the prison. So I'll stop there and move on because we, uh, we only got about 15 minutes. Telecommunications, number two. Although corporatists love to describe themselves as believers in free market competition, the reality is that many of them do everything they can to rig the game. Avoid competition and become monopolies. One telecom company that operates as a monopoly in many prisons is Global Tail Link, GTL. The company has been making $500 million annually in profits thanks to its exclusive contracts with a long list of prisons. When prisoners make collect calls via GTL, the person accepting the call pays inflated rates up to $1.13 per minute. I think Max said he talked to his son who's in prison the other day and um, it cost him $15. GTL can get away with charging those rates because it doesn't have to compete with other telecom companies in prisons where it has exclusive contracts. See, they don't even have to compete with the Internet where you can make free calls. You know, you can talk to your loved one who's enslaved through Skype or Google Hangouts or something like that. You know, yeah. Three, healthcare companies. Inside American prisons, decent healthcare is hard to come by. Corizon, a company that specializes in prison healthcare, is making an estimated $1.4 billion annually, despite doing an abysmal job caring for those they are paid to treat. In 2012, seven sick prisoners died in a Louisville, Kentucky jail where Corizon was in charge of healthcare. The city of Louisville later canceled its contract with Corizon. In the video, Prison profiteers, a Tucson, Arizona woman whose incarcerated son had hepatitis C, was told by Corizon employees that they had no protocol for treating the disease, which is rampant in prisons. Not only that, I think there was a young man who died uh, recently because uh, he was on a hunger strike and they, the uh, prison health care company, I don't know if it was in-house or it was a contractor, uh, Said he was okay. And then he died from starvation. At least that's what we're hearing from the family. All right. Many other cases. Uh, diabetes. People not getting their diabetes medication. Dying in prison. Getting gangrene and all of this and that. 
Number four, telemarketing and call centers. Yeah, y'all got that Sprint PCS, don't y'all? Y'all got that AT&T, don't you? You got that Verizon, don't you? Many American corporations have moved their call centers to India, the Philippines, Honduras, and other countries where they can get away with paying a slave wage. But some American corporations in need of call centers have found an even cheaper source of labor. American inmates. USA Today reported in 20, 2004 that 2,000 or more prisoners in the U.S. were working in call centers. About 80 of them were in Snake River Prison in Oregon where inmates were being paid around uh, 120 to 185 a month for working full time. So that's 48. Uh, that's 40 hours a week. Uh, what is that? Uh, 40 hours a week. That would be 80. That would be 160 hours a week, and they're getting 120 to 185 a month, which averages out to a slave wage of a dollar something an hour. See, they don't want to give you that job. Where and I've worked in a call center. And I know some of my fellow workers when I was working in that call center were making up to $70,000 a freaking year, man. For real. I think the lowest, I think they start you out coming in the door at 30000 a year. You know, if you know how to negotiate. All right. So they're paying people now a dollar something an hour. So you can, that complaint that you had about that customer service rep, not understanding English and all of that, they saw that problem. Yeah, they got some. They got some people who do speak fluent English um, in, to uh, handle your customer service calls, and they they are your uh, family members that's enslaved in many of these places. And I'm sure it's more than two thousand prisoners. That was in 2004. We're in 2015. Clothing manufacturers. Prison prisoners are making a lot more than license plates these days. A wide variety of products are being manufactured in U.S. prisons, from office furniture and bedding to sinks, toilets, and clothing. Yeah, that 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 mattress you got you laying on it was made by prison slave labor. All kinds of clothing is made in American prisons: shirts, hats, pants, shoes, jackets, you name it. Even Victoria's Secret. Yeah, you know that 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 uh bustier. That you bought for your wife, you know, I, I forgot what they call it, kind of uh, clothing and whatnot. But, yeah, you bought that so your wife would look sexy and all this and that. Well, guess who made that? A prison slave. In the 1990s, Victoria's Secret subcontract, a third generation hired 35 female inmates in North Carolina to sew lingerie. That's the name I was looking for. That's the name I was looking for. All right. Six, the technology sector. Now, I know some people been complaining about there is no diversity in technology and whatnot that, you know, like very few black people work for Twitter or work for Facebook or any of these tech startups or anything like that. Well, actually, that's not true. They got a lot of them working for them and they're in prison. Back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, unionized manufacturing and packaging jobs were great for the American middle class. But that was before so many of those jobs were outsourced to Pakistan, Bangladesh, China, and other countries with ultra-low wages and terrible working conditions. Some corporations, however, have found a source of ultra-cheap labor right in the U.S. Inmates who can be 
paid as low as 35 cents an hour. The technology sector has been willing to make use of prison labor. Xmark, a Microsoft subcontractor, used prisoners in Washington State for shrink-wrapping Microsoft products, including mouses and software in the 1990s. And in 2003, Dell used federal prisoners for recycling desktop computers. Walmart does the same thing. The bail industry, according to research by the ACLU and The Nation, the bail industry now pulls in $2 billion in revenue annually. They describe the practices of bail bondsmen like Eric Amparan, who owns 10% of a bail amount, as a non-refundable fee, even if the person is found innocent. The higher the bail amount set by judges, the more bail bondsmen stand to make. The prison profiteers reported that between 2002 and 2011, the American Bail Coalition, a lobbying group for the bail industry, spent $3.1 million lobbying for judges to set higher bail amounts. So, again, talk to me about your criminal justice system. There's no justice involved whatsoever. Number eight, food processing and packaging. The prison industrial complex not only uses companies like Aramac that bring food to prisoners, it can also use prison labor to process food for people on the outside. In 2008, Mother Jones, Caroline Winter reported that in California alone, prisoners were processing more than 680,000 pounds of beef 400,000 pounds of chicken products, 450,000 gallons of milk, 280,000 loaves of bread, and 2.9 million eggs. Winter reported the Signature Packaging Solutions, a Starbucks subcontractor, was using prisoner, prisoners to package holiday coffees. And you wonder why these Fortune 500 um, uh, companies are doing so well. Because they're using slave labor, man. That's the oh, that's the oldest pillar of the United States economy, man. And it's not just in California. They just talking about California. When my youngest brother was was uh, wrongfully convicted of a breaking and entering charge with no evidence and no, I mean, no evidence whatsoever, none, not even an eyewitness uh, identifying him. All right. He, they had my brother working on a turkey farm, processing turkeys, all right, here in North Carolina. So it ain't just California, people. It's all over. Number nine, agriculture, with more states finding farmers for hiring undocumented workers and fewer agriculture workers coming in from Mexico. The prison industrial complex has been using more prisoners, prisoners as a source of farm labor. This is happening everywhere, from Georgia to Arizona to Idaho. Those Idaho potatoes, yeah. Where, it, where in 2014, State Senator Patty Ann Lodge, a Republican, sponsored a bill allowing agricultural employers to hire prisoners. The bill was quickly signed into law by Idaho's, Idaho's Republican Governor, C.L. Otter. Those are nine industries that are profiting handsomely from 21st century slavery and human trafficking. They are a threat to your union labor. They not, it's not they will become a threat. They already are a threat to your union labor. Listen, people, slavery was never abolished in this country. They just reformatted it. That's all they did. All right. 
Yes, the primary victims of 21st century slavery and human trafficking are black, but there are a large number of Hispanics, a large number of Native Indians, a large number of poor whites. All right. So if you don't identify with black people being enslaved, you don't care about that. Maybe you might care about your cousins, your your white cousin being enslaved. Maybe you might care about that. Maybe you might care about your Latino brothers and sisters being enslaved. All right. So anyway, and that's just talking about the state prisons and the federal prisons. They ain't even really talking about the private prisons uh, in terms of immigration detention facilities, which we have seen this year, a number of rebellions and work stoppages occur in these detention facilities for undocumented immigrants. They putting them to work out in them fields. Got to end slavery, y'all. That should be your number one priority, ending slavery in this country. Now, the last story that I want to share with you, only got a couple of minutes still waiting on Brother Dave to uh, to join us so we can get uh, into his broadcast. Let me close some of these windows for my system starts locking up. Um, a police chief, all right, neo-slave catcher. This article is coming to you from Yahoo.com. A police chief compared black people to monkeys after racism complaint. A police chief has resigned after reports stated that he compared black people to monkeys following the arrest of a black woman. Police chief Marvin Hoover is said to have imitated a monkey when officers told him that the woman they arrested had threatened to sue them for discrimination. An official reporting to the incident alleges that Hoover beat his chest like Tarzan after describing the woman as an animal. The officers in, in Klatskine I think that's how you pronounce it. Oregon filed a complaint that has resulted in Hoover 56 resigning his post. Don't talk to me about good cops unless good cops are report are reporting the misconduct and the open racism of their fellow officers and those who are also uh, in management. That's a good cop. That's a good cop right there. Even though we got to tell that good cop, you got to stop arresting people on victimless crimes and putting them into slavery. But you're on your way. We, you know, the officers in Klaskine, Oregon, filed a complaint that has resulted in Hoover, who's 56 years old, resigning from his post. Officer Dustin Stone said in his complaint that was seen by U.S. station KOIN6, I relayed several of the arrestees' remarks, such as, when you look at me, my black and nappy hair, all you see is an animal. Chief Hoover interrupted me and said, that's what she is. Hoover then apparently began acting like a monkey, placing his hands under his armpits and scratching them and making monkey noises, according to Officer Stone. He added, as Chief Hoover was comparing African-Americans to monkeys, I, I began to become extremely uncomfortable. I have never been in a work environment where a manager, especially an executive officer, is openly racist. After being placed on paid leave at the end of August, Hoover has now resigned and Klatskine 
Mayor Diane Pohl paid tribute to this racist in a public letter. That's my words. Of course, they didn't say that. She wrote, thanks, Chief Hoover, for a job well done. You have this community's gratitude, gratefulness, and appreciation. Enjoy your retirement knowing we will miss you and wish you all the best. See, he goes into retirement. He might even go uh, travel to another uh, city or town and get another job. Officer Stone has since said that he and his wife have been harassed by residents since filing the report. He told KOIN, I've already faced a lot of retaliation. My wife's been forced off the road twice. I've had people in the community yelling the N-word at me. So that's your All Lives Matter, folks. That's your Blue Lives Matter, folks, for you, right? Yeah. They for you until you take a stand against racism and white supremacy. All right. That's the end of my program. Stay tuned as Tando Radio Show is coming on air right here after this program. And let me just say this in closing. Recognize the fact that you live behind enemy lines. It's a battlefield out there. It's battlefield America. Casualties are being created every day. So once you come to this knowledge, then you should be working on developing battlefield awareness, developing a skill set that will decrease. You can't stop it. There's no guarantees, but you can at least develop skills that will decrease the likelihood that you will become a 21st century slave, a victim of human trafficking, or even worse, a dead casualty out there on that battlefield. I will be back on air tomorrow. I do believe we have a guest coming on tomorrow. I will post that information at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Um, peace and blessings to all, and be safe out there. Hit me! Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.